the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Kara Carincefelli. I'm a certified health coach and I help people heal their relationships with food and their bodies. If you are new to this podcast, you can find me at Kara's Kitchen on Instagram. That's Kara with a C, Kitchen with a K. And if you are a new listener, like, hey, what's up? So happy to have you. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Love having you here. I'm really, really stoked about today's podcast episode with Catherine Bailey. I just finished editing the podcast right before recording this intro and it was so good. Catherine was so insightful. We talk about parenting, feminist parenting, how to support kids with body image, consent, media literacy, all of these important things. We talk about food and intuitive eating and we giggle and we laugh and it was just in a really great conversation that I'm excited for you to listen to. I also know that we are in the middle of like a crazy time right now with quarantine with the coronavirus it's just crazy um unique uh something that most of us I'm assuming have never experienced a a pandemic a, a virus like this in our lifetimes and if you follow me on Instagram then you know I am in Sedona my dad has a cabin here and all of his Airbnb guests canceled obviously and we decided to get out of LA We are coming out to Arizona anyways for my birthday. This podcast is actually airing live on my 32nd birthday. I was born March 25th. Yeah, hey, hey. Shout out to all you Aries ladies out there, you fiery, high-achieving, driven women, us Aries. We totally are. And we decided to stay here uh, a little longer since they put LA on lockdown and we don't have a house in LA. We have an apartment and we get to hang out in my dad's cabin and it's so cute. And there's animals and nature and he lives right by the creek and there's a hot tub and a grill and it's just really nice to have so much space. So we're, we're making the best of this time. We're really enjoying being here in Sedona. It has incredible energy. If you know anything about Sedona, it is like a very spiritual, um, advanced town, tourist town. It has what is known as the vortex and there's incredible mountains and hiking and it is just so beautiful. So if you ever have a chance to come out Sedona, come out to Sedona, highly recommend it. I'm sending you all so much love right now. I know this is a interesting time and I hope that you are navigating it and making the most, the most of it and, and seeing the silver linings that that could be happening through all of this you know I've been really leaning into the perspective that this is happening for us not to us and even though that isn't true I do believe that it's very empowering to look from the perspective that this is happening for us it allows me to feel expansive and look for opportunities from everything that is happening And I wanted to share two quick little announcements before we get into the episode. So the first announcement is if you are struggling with your relationship with food and your body in general and or if this current situation in life is exacerbating previous behaviors and thought patterns that you thought were healed and now they're coming back up to the surface or if it's exacerbating 
your unhealed wounds around food and your body image, I'd love for you to join Tristan and I, Tristan Thibodeau, she's been on the podcast twice, on Thursday, March 26th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're offering you guys a free support group, coaching call, sanity session, whatever you want to call it. It's a great opportunity to come, get support, ask questions, be around a supportive community who... um, is going through something similar and you can get practical tips and advice on how to navigate this time. So if that's you, come join us. The link to register will be either on my Instagram or you can find it in the show notes here or DM me if you can't find it. I'll shoot it right back to you on on Instagram. Again, care with a C kitchen with a K. And then if you are interested in becoming a health coach, you want to become a food and body image coach like I am, you want to start a podcast or write a book, you want to hold retreats, you want to speak on stage, you want to work with people individually or in groups or all of the above, and you're struggling to stand out online or you're struggling to call in your clients, then I am also super stoked to share with you that on Friday, the 27th, Friday, March the 27th, Brandilyn Tebow and I are teaching another free masterclass. It's called How to Stand Out Online as a New Food and Body Image Coach. And we're going to be sharing with you all of our, um, everything that we've learned about how to stand out online, about how to cut through the noise, how to diver- differentiate yourself from other coaches, how to call in your people, how to magnetize the people who need your medicine and your magic and your truth to you. We're going to be teaching you how to do that. You know, both Brandilyn and I at this point have worked with hundreds of people in a variety of different contexts, one-on-one, groups, retreat, large events, all of those things. And we've been able to build very successful, sustainable businesses that help change the world, that help change lives. And it's so fulfilling and so awesome. So if that's you, if you're listening, uh, join us on Friday the 27th for that masterclass. The link to register will be in the show notes. You can also find the link to register in my Instagram bio or on Instagram. And if you can't find it, just again, shoot me a DM and I will shoot it back to you. I would love to see you on Friday the 27th. That is going to be again at 1230 Pacific Standard Time. Maybe it's 12. I'll have to double check. But it's either 12 or 1230 Pacific Standard Time. Okay. Let's talk about Catherine Bailey, who is today's podcast guest. She is the founder of Think or Blue, a community of parents, teachers, and family who believe that children thrive best in a world free from gender stereotypes. She helps caregivers use feminist parenting strategies to tackle tough topics like body image, consent, media literacy, so that you can raise children who embrace their individual individuality. Catherine is a lawyer and a woman's policy expert and was instrumental in passing policies that support work and family, such as pay equity and paid family and medical leave in her home state of Connecticut. She was raised in the 1980s on Free to Be You and Me. Catherine has feminism running in her blood. She lives in Connecticut with her husband and four-year-old. She loves dark chocolate, rock concerts, and the Gilmore Girls. So I'm really stoked for you to get to listen to this podcast episode. We talk about so many awesome, incredible things, and I just loved it. Catherine is a joy. And I do want to add that she mentioned this this, uh, movie called the Mask You Live In, and Caroline Heldman, who was on the podcast a week or two ago, also mentioned that documentary. So I decided to rent it on Amazon. It was like $3.99, and it was awesome. So 
if you are at all interested about learning about toxic masculinity and how these gender norms and stereotypes also hurt men, go check it out. It was incredibly insightful and eye-opening and I loved the documentary. So yeah, okay. Let's get into to today's episode. I love you. I hope you're well. I'm sending you love. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. Today we have a lovely guest with us. Her name is Catherine. Catherine, thank you for being here with us. Hi, Kara. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the topic that we're going to be talking about today, um, which is like gender stereotypes and children. This is a topic that we haven't really discussed on the podcast, and I'm thrilled to be diving into it today. So for those of us listening who aren't familiar with you and your work, how did your passion for combating gender stereotypes, combating gender stereotypes in children develop. So kind of just give us a little bit of your history yeah. and how you got to where you are now with this great organization and company called Thinker Blue. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, it's funny, the way I first became interested in gender stereotypes in children was way before I even had children. When I was in college, um, I was studying communications and gender studies, and I decided to do one of my senior papers on Halloween costumes for children. And it's funny because growing up, my mom had mostly made our costumes. We didn't really shop for them. And so going into one of those pop-up Halloween stores was kind of a shock. And I looked around and saw, you know, not very surprising, but it was um, for boys, they had police officer, firefighter, kind of, you know, those types of professions, all of the scary ghoul ghost type stuff and like ninjas, you know, that kind of thing. And then for girls, it was a couple professions, not that many, mostly the caring professions um, and lots of fairies and things like that. And it was just so stark, the contrast in the costumes. And so I wrote about it for college. And then even again, before I had my child, um, I read Peggy Orenstein's Cinderella Ate My Daughter and was just kind of like primed, you know, for when I had children that these stereotypes were gonna pop up. And sure enough, they did. You know, once I had my daughter, she was about two years old. We went to the park and she didn't have that much hair at the time. She had a couple little curls peeking out of her hat, just like a navy blue jacket on. And this adult came up to her and clearly thought she was a boy, which I didn't care. But what was fascinating was the way he spoke to her. So tough, so sure of himself. You know, like, hey, bud, how's it going? You're doing great today. Look at you climb, climbing that slide. And I was like, whoa, no one has ever spoken to my daughter that way. It's usually, oh, hi, dearie, aren't you pretty? Are you having fun today? That soft tone of voice. So I immediately noticed it and felt like this is something that I need to do. This is something I need to put more work into. So at that point, you know, as you know, I, um, I was a lawyer uh, in my early adult life and then transferred to the nonprofit world where I worked for a women's organization doing le legal education and public policy. Um, and so like advocacy and changing laws and changing opinion were something that were, that was just very natural to me. And so I think I just, you know, took that mindset and applied it to this issue. Um, mm -hmm. because I truly believe that if we're going to reach gender equity, we need to start with the next generation and change public opinion. Mm. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting how you've had these little, like, little like dots in your story that have like perked your awareness 
like you said, like the costumes and then this instant on the playground with your daughter and experiencing the difference in how they, how this man had spoken to your daughter, assuming that he was a man. So like, Mm -hmm. I can see where the interest has come from. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think that it's so important that we need to start with the next generation and that we need to change this? Like what is kind of the problem that you see with the disparity in how we treat boys versus girls? Right. Well, you know, so much of the work, you know, and I still have a passion for policy, but, you know, so I was fighting for fair workplace policies, like equal pay and paid family and medical leave. And I'm still so passionate about those. And I think there's a time and a place for that. And we really need to keep working on those policies. Um, But, you know, a lot of those policies come from these opinions um, that, you know, women and men have these fundamental differences or needs in the workplace that they don't get deserve to be paid as much or that caregiving is not valuable. Um, And so if we're going to get to a place where we do value caregiving, and the role that women have traditionally played in our society, then public opinion has to change too. So, mm. you know, and, and I am, I'm surprised a lot by kind of the views of parents who consider themselves progressive, but we still rely on these outdated gender stereotypes because they've been with us forever. Mm, mm. Can you go into that a little bit deeper? Like what are some of those stereotypes that you see is really common with people who see themselves as progressive. So I, I actually think that the the listener base of this podcast is progressive and also considers themselves progressive. And I've been, I have even said things on my Instagram where it's like, like for instance, a couple of weeks ago, Brent was putting together a bed and I was like, this looks like a man's job. And <laughs> I had said it, not trying to do gender stereotypes. I said it with like, I want to get out of putting this bed together because I don't want to do <laughs> <Exactly>. it. <laughs> so that's where it came from. But I actually yeah. had several people like call me out mm-hmm. uh, in my DMs. Be like, I'm really surprised to hear this from you, Kara. Like I really thought, you know, so I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, got it. Totally understand. Um, yeah. yeah. So, like dive into some of those, those right. um, stereotypes. Yeah. And we all have that, you know, like I think my husband loves to fix things in the house. So I've gotten incredibly lazy over the last decade about, fixing things. Whereas when I was, you know, a single woman in my twenties, like I put together an entire like 10 foot desk by myself, assembled it and disassembled it twice. So it's like, I know I can do these things, but I've gotten super lazy about it. Um, So it happens, you know, like we're not evil. We're not, it doesn't make us any less feminist, but when it comes to children and this is, you know, like kind of jumping in, this is one of what I consider to be the first pillar of feminist parenting is recognizing our own internal biases. So I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist parent, but that doesn't mean I don't have my own biases. So something really interesting is that when children are hurt, we are four times more likely to tell a girl to be careful next time than to tell a boy the same thing. Because we expect boys are going to get hurt. We expect they're going to be fine but we don't expect the same thing for girls. So we're telling them to be careful. Um, Studies show that the words we use as parents are much different. So we use lots more feeling words with girls and we use spatial talk with boys. 
And actually, we just use more words in general with girls, which is really sad. Parents don't talk to their boys as much, which I just find incredibly sad. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to appearance and body image, this is something that I've personally witnessed in our own lives, that we are just as a culture so much more likely to comment on a girl's appearance and use it as a starting point for a conversation with them than we are for boys. With boys, it's, you're so active and what are you interested in? With girls, it's, oh, I love your sweater. Isn't that cute? Look at those sequins. Mm, okay. Yes, totally. And we've definitely talked about that last bit on the podcast quite a bit. I want to rewind and you had said that we use more feeling language with girls and more spatial language with guys. What, is, what does that actually like look like in action? Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, with, with boys, they learn mad and sad and they don't learn a lot of other emotions because we don't talk to them as much about what it means to be anxious or missing someone, you know, or nervous or excited or joyful or peaceful. You know, there's so many words and so many feelings um, that, you know, parents just are talking more to girls about these and allowing space for them to be sad, whereas we're not allowing that space for boys. Um, it's, you're fine, you're okay, you're going to be tough and you're going to get through it. And then in terms of the spatial talk, it sounds really simple and really basic, but it's words and phrases like, this is underneath that, or this cup is larger than that one. You know, so these aren't like, you don't have to be an engineer or mathematician to know to, to use spatial talk. Um, but, you know, as a culture, we're just using it more with boys. Mm. Do you think that has anything to do with like the types of toys we give them? It could be. I think it's like our assumption that their brains are going to work a certain way, that they're going to want to learn more about mechanics because we assume they're interested in planes and cars and trucks. Um, and that we assume that girls are going to want to talk about their feelings and care for their family and care for their dolls a lot more. Mm. And it kind of makes me think of like instances in society where this gets played out. So I'm th thinking about, I think it's the movie Meet the Fockers and like Ben Stiller's mm -hmm. character is like a male nurse. And yes. um, is it Robert De Niro who plays the dad who's like, you're a nurse and like making fun of him. And, yep. and so it's like, do you have other examples of like media where you've seen this? that kind of shows us where these biases come from? Oh gosh, Kara, it's like everywhere. I can't even think of an example because it's everywhere. Um, but yeah, like even in, even in children's shows, it can be hard to pick media that you feel good about for your children. Um, um, there's, there's this one uh, animated show, I can't even remember the name, it seems really cute on the outside. They're solving problems together, this group of kids. But when you see how the girls are positioned in their stances, and your, your, your listeners can't see me now, but it's like they, they do these, they're always kind of standing in like a little cutesy pose as if they just finished a dance or that people are looking at them. Um, so it's this like voyeurism too that we bring to girls that, um, reveals itself in the media constantly. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So that leads us into like the next question, really beautiful, which is like, I want to talk about these five pillars of feminist parenting and how they relate to body image. And you had said yeah. that pillar one, you had said, this is the, it's, um, about adults recognizing their own bias. And so this is, I think a part of that where it's like, you actually realize where this bias comes from because we've actually grown up with similar media and gender norms. So it's, so we don't want to like blame ourselves for it, but we do want to have accountability and take responsibility for our biases. So walk us through the five pillars. You have more to add to pillar one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was number one about recognizing internal biases and as I alluded to, this can really set girls up for body scrutiny because as a culture, we're just so used to evaluating women and girls' appearances and bodies. And I see how this translates to our kids. Um, So, you know, very quickly off the bat, by the time my daughter was two and a half or three, she had a preschool teacher who complimented her outfit almost every day. And it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that. You know, what's wrong with complimenting an outfit? It makes a kid feel good, right? But she became so, she realized, you know, my teacher is looking at my outfit. She's looking at my body. She's looking at my appearance. And she's getting a smile on her face when I wear something that has ruffles and frills and is a little more feminine um, or, you know, has these bright colors. So she even would say to me at home, I wonder if Miss So-and-so is going to like my outfit today. I was like, ah, no, this is not where we're going with feminist parenting. Um, But it happens, you know, so yeah, so that's why recognizing our own internal biases are so important and and I'm still doing it every day. Mm -hmm. So do you have any tips for someone on how to recognize their own biases, some practical things that, you know, those listening can start to utilize? Absolutely. One thing is if you're, if you don't have kids of your own, but you are an aunt or an uncle or a coach or a teacher, just a family member, um, before you buy a gift, ask yourself, would I buy this for a child of another gender? Because I think the answer, you know, sometimes is yes, um, but sometimes is no. Uh, We've, you know, definitely received, I mean, my family for the most part really knows what's, you know, what's going on with us and how we're trying to raise our kids. So people are so, you know, sweet about it and very, very thoughtful, but you know, every once in a while there'll be an event or something where, you know, people are, are giving her princesses just because she's a girl. So yeah, one is gift giving. Um, for me, the other, the others are, uh, you know, discipline and getting hurt to me are, are two other big ones. Um, for discipline, I am always questioning myself, and I think it's helpful for parents to do this. Um, you know, when my daughter was jumping on the couch one day, I was so tempted to just right away say, we do not jump on the couch, sit down. And I thought to myself for one second, would I say the same thing if she were a boy? Or would I say, boys are active, they jump all over the furniture, it's just what they do. Um, and when, and again, when they get hurt, as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, um, ask yourself if you would have that same reaction for a child of another gender. Mm, so it sounds like that's like the foundation of all of the tips is to just like actually check in and say, how would I react if my child was the opposite gender? 
Absolutely. What would I buy them if they were the opposite gender? Now, is right. there any other tips for anyone who's gender non-conforming or gender neutral? Like I get, that's kind of where the conversation yes. around gender can get more complicated, yes. at least for, for someone who's not like an expert in that area. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned it because I was just thinking about that. You know, when we're saying like the opposite gender really, you know, we're thinking about gender as more of a spectrum today. And I'm so glad that there's more awareness about that because Bottom line is kids deserve to be kids. We don't need to put them into these boxes and create these identities for them based on their genitalia. And that's what's been happening. We see it so early with the pink and blue gender reveal parties, um, which gets hyped up because of social media, of course, in this Pinterest day and age. And that's okay, you know, it's, it's okay to be celebratory, it's okay to be excited about your child, but you know, I think I'm happy to see there's such a growing recognition among parents that um, a child's genitalia doesn't necessarily dictate what their gender is going to be and how they're going to identify. Um, So, you know, I think it's still a tough road for kids who identify in that way. And there's a lot of education still happening, but it's, you know, it's absolutely part of this conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that I like, yes, I think that more and more people are becoming more aware of the fact that gender is a spectrum and that historically we've liked to put it in boxes, which we talked about this on the podcast with Dr. Caroline Heldman, you know, the human brain likes to categorize things often in polarity. So there's like black and white, good and bad, boy and girl. And we do this so that we can like understand, categorize, like make mm-hmm. sense, organize, right? Like there's all these you know, quote, like reasons for why we do these things. And yes, more people are realizing that like gender is a spectrum. People are realizing that disordered eating is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. But what would you say to someone who is having resistance to this conversation around gender being a spectrum and not wanting to put your child in a box? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it can be really hard for adults to get used to Um, especially if they had never heard these terms until the last couple of years. Um, And, you know, the wonderful thing is, like, I think it's awesome that we now have some celebrities in American culture and worldwide, really, who are transgender because it's helping people understand it a little bit better. But we're still, you know, we're still not seeing, like, as many... um, a growing number, but not as many, I guess, like non-binary folks who are in the public eye and, and as famous as, say, Caitlyn Jenner, Laverne Cox. But, you know, I think like what we're always in, in terms of, I don't know if you can necessarily convince people right away to, to understand this and to shift their thinking. But for me, it's more of this gradual introduction to this idea that our body parts don't dictate the things that we enjoy, um, our interests, and our characteristics as a person. So I think if you can start to buy into that um, mindset, then you can start to understand what it means to be gender nonconforming. Mm, and I like completely see the overlap into how like our body doesn't define our worth or who we are or says anything about our health. Like I'm really seeing right. how this is like the same the same sort of like practice or perspective, but just in a different context. Yes. Um, Amazing. Love that you brought that in there. Okay. (laughs) So let's go on to the second pillar of 
feminist parenting, which is use respectful parenting. Yes, to me, respectful parenting and feminist parenting are essentially one in the same. And, you know, you may see lots of different, different definitions for what respectful parenting is. Um, but it is, you know, to me, it is a, uh, a vast change from the authoritarian style of parenting that we've had for as kind of the model um, for so many years, which is a system of rewards and punishments a sort of do as I say attitude. Um, and shifting to respectful parenting really helps parents to recognize that our, our children are whole people. You know, like she's a whole person as she exists today. Um, acknowledging their feelings, their emotions, and their bodies as their own person. So, you know, it's, I think it's hard sometimes for adults to acknowledge feelings because one, we've been trained um, that feelings make us uncomfortable. We don't really want to talk about feelings, right? <laughs> and two, children's feelings seem silly to us a lot of the time. Like, oh, you didn't get the red ball. You need to have the blue ball. Just deal with it. It's not that big a deal, right? Like, relax, calm down. Um, but to them, it's their whole world. They're a child and it means a lot to them. So, um, you know, and this, this helps acknowledging their feelings can really help a lot with understanding why a child is acting in a certain way. It can actually help us with behavior a lot. You know, oh, you're tired. That's why you're kind of melting down right now. Um, instead of saying, stop crying or, you know, you're going to get that toy taken away from you you know, and like treating a child's body as, so that's emotions. And then treating their body as their own is critical for so many reasons. And I know you understand this. Um, but I think that um, like food can be used in an authoritarian way too. Um, there's this attitude sometimes at the dinner table that you need to eat all your broccoli before you can leave. And with that, we're we're really teaching our children not to listen to their body's natural cues, to their hunger and their fullness cues. So if we are, you know, using respectful parenting, then it's a lot easier for us to say, oh, you're full. Okay. And leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, like, as you're saying that, like, I like historically had an eating disorder basically during the, all of the years that I was a nanny. And it's like, I'm so much more aware of like, languaging and like these dinner table conversations that you're talking about. And like, I have to work really hard on not like feeling really guilty and beating myself up and just like right. forgiving myself yes. because I didn't, I didn't understand the impact that mm -hmm. like I could potentially be having on, of, of like on the kids that I managed by being like, you need to finish that. No dessert right. until you eat this. Or like right. them being like, I don't want any more food. And me being like, you have to finish your plate. Like I, mm -hmm. even just as a nanny, I've been so guilty of my own, <laughs> my own bullshit, you know? And I'm like, I, I know. really hope I didn't fuck up your child. <laughs> no, I know. And none of us are perfect. It's okay. And, you know, for parents who are, and I'm sure we'll, we'll keep talking about this throughout the podcast, but for parents who are worried about that, it's like, it's not too late. Okay. It's not, you can still have a wonderful impact on your children. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And bringing awareness to how you talk about mealtime. And, and I actually would love to hear your thoughts on this because sometimes I sort of like, I struggle with the negative 
mentality that we have towards using food as a reward. Mm-hmm. Because like, if I had like a great month, say financially with like my <laughs> business or whatever, I'm like, dude, let's go out to like a bougie ass dinner. I want cocktails. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go celebrate. And so I'm like, but what's yes. wrong with using food as a reward? So yeah. can, can you dissect it and, and add some nuance so that we can understand like, what are the pros and cons? Where do we need, what do we need to look out for when we're using food as a reward mm-hmm. or a punishment? Like, can mm-hmm. you add some more context to that conversation? Definitely. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, it's a wonderful point. You know what I, the difference is um, celebration versus reward. So mm. I think it's awesome to, you can celebrate with food, right? Like we have holidays where we celebrate with family and we have all this food on the table and it, it takes the center oftentimes of the holiday. Or, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful summer day. And so we want to celebrate by going out for ice cream. Like all those things are, are fine and they're wonderful. The difference for me is when it becomes a reward for specific behavior that's completely unrelated to the food, right? Or sometimes it is related to the food when it's, you need to eat five bites of broccoli in order to have ice cream for dessert. That's like a clear reward that is not often very helpful. Um, Or it's, you know, if you finish your homework by five o'clock, then you can have Skittles or something like that, you know? Those, those are rewards as opposed to celebrations. And when it's a reward, I think it teaches children that they're not entitled to have those Skittles on a normal day or the ice cream on a normal day. That something, they have to have done something good. They have to have achieved something in order to have that sweet or that treat. Mm. And, you know, as you know, like that's just not how we want to be raising our our children, that we want them to feel that they can have ice cream because they want to have ice cream that day and that we're not going to stigmatize that food. Right. And it really adds into the diet mentality that so many of us have where it's like, I have to be good. I have to earn it. I have to make up for it. I need to, I need to restrict now, or I need to put in a a crazy exercise, uh, workout so that I can earn the food. So I can see how it's like, we're already sort of planning that mentality in, even though it's a slightly different context, it's like, eat your broccoli, clean your room, but it's the same mentality. Like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it just, it goes a long way towards stigmatizing our food choices. Mm. And I love that distinction, celebration versus reward, Mm -hmm. like really, really potent distinction. So I love that. Okay. Let's move on to pillar three of feminist parenting, which is mini feminist development. Yeah, this is, this might be my favorite because of my background in policy and, you know, systemic change. You know, it's, it's wonderful to create and raise a child who feels confident and empowered to be a leader and all that stuff. And, you know, in the 90s, we saw this girl power movement and, you know, yay, rah, rah, that's awesome. But, you know, feminist parents also want to cultivate their child's understanding of the world around them and of all the isms, you know, that exist out there. So racism and ableism and heteronormativity and weight stigma and fat phobia. Like those are all things that we need to teach our child, our children, um, you know, so that they have an understanding of injustices in the world and what their role is in creating change. And I feel like this has such a direct relation to body image because, you know, as you have said before on your podcast, like, 
body dissatisfaction and body, body hatred are not individual failings. They are these systemic forces that are all working against us at the same time. And so if we really want to take down both patriarchy and diet culture, we need our children to understand that these are systems of oppression that are working, you know, like very cohesively and then understand how to undo them. Mm. What are some of the ways that you, so these are like super heady, complex topics. <laughs> like even me at like, I'm about to be 32. Even me, I'm still like yeah. wrapping my head around them and learning. And I still have like so much to learn. So like, what does that look like? Like teaching a child yeah. about these issues. What are maybe some examples of situations where they can be a teaching moment? Yeah. Well, I love books for this. Okay. I mean, tough topics are just easiest to approach when you have a good book. So, you know, when it comes to talking about race, we have, um, we've gotten books like Let's Talk About Race and um, Si Se Puede and Chocolate Me. Like those are some of our favorites um, because it really opens up the conversation in a way that is fun and has illustrations and is engaging to a child rather than sitting down with them and being like, okay, kids, today we're going to talk about ableism. You know, like, what is that? So books are my favorite way of doing that. And then they open up, you know, a dialogue that can continue. So for example, um, like with weight stigma, we, um, you know, my, my daughter, my, my daughter's four. She doesn't know the word weight stigma. She doesn't know the word fat phobia <laughs> and that's okay. But what she knows is that all bodies are good bodies. And so that's where we start, you know, very, in a very simple way. And, I, um, you know, like I'll give you one example. There was a delivery person you know, who delivered, I don't know, a UPS package or something to the door. And my daughter peeked out the window. She saw him approaching and, and leaving the package there. And, and she kind of giggled and I didn't know why. And I looked at this person and he was on the larger side. And a lot of parents probably would have let it go because she didn't say anything bad. She didn't, you know, tease him or anything like that. But I said, you know, hey kiddo, why were you giggling at that person? You know, and she's like, yeah. And I said, why? And then she tried to backtrack. She was like, no, no, I wasn't because she knew that it was kind of, you know, <laughs> I considered it bad or something. And so she tried to backtrack, but you know, I just said, well, it re laughing because he's large, you know, and she's like, yeah, she kind of admitted it. I said, okay, well, you know, as, as you know, because we've talked about it before, as you know, we come in all different shapes and sizes, right? Everyone has a different body and all bodies are good bodies. So like, it's, it's a way that you can um, use kid-friendly language without having to, you know, speak with those super technical terms. Mm, yeah. And like, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like synthesizing it down into the most like basic, simple yes. way to say it. And I can even see when you yes. had mentioned like, hey, let's talk about ableism today. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> I could see how there'd be an opportunity where like maybe a child would ask questions about someone being in a wheelchair and you, exactly. In, so how would you approach that situation? Let's say like a kid makes a comment, like, why is he in that? Or what's going on? Like, how would you maybe turn that into a teaching moment about ableism? Mm-hmm. Like one thing to consider, I guess, is, is your community and what your child is exposed to every day. And it's easy, I think, for some to be kind of um, 
have like a little bit of a bubble, you know? So we're always like asking ourselves who, you know, like who and what is our child being exposed to, right? Um, and we like, in, in our situation, she's very accepting because like we have a friend who uses a wheelchair. And so it was like a very, you know, easy parlay into it. And while she didn't ask a lot, a ton of questions about why, um, it is a great opportunity to, you know, if, if your children do ask why, um, to, you know, talk about that all bodies work differently and um, that we all need, you know, certain things that help us. And you can even relate it to them, you know, like some, something that they may use, um, you know, like a step stool that a child uses to brush their teeth on. You mm. can say like, you know how you need that sometime because you can't reach the sink? Well, some, you know, people use a wheelchair because they need it to move around. Um, so I think it's like super helpful when you can relate it to their world in some way. Yeah, or like glasses could be like it, like if they exactly. wear glasses, right? Like you need glasses to help you see this person has this to help them move. Exactly. Love that. Love that. And then like yeah. the second component, once you've introduced the concept with younger children, then like the second concept or like the second level of that discussion is um, teaching them that people, you know, in those situations that people haven't always been nice to them, you know, and that's like the early form of teaching them about discrimination is that, you know, they may have had a harder time in the world and people haven't always been that accepting or very nice. You know, it sounds kind of simplified, but that would be the next level in, in kind of teaching those isms. Mm, yeah. And like having compassion and empathy and being kind and, mm -hmm. and teaching them about like bullying, right? I think like bullying would be like the, the distilled downward of discrimination. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So let's move on to pillar four of feminist mm. parenting, and this is support their individuality. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I like to call this one, let them be a geek, because <laughs> I, I think it really brings it to the forefront of what we're aiming for here. Now, your kid doesn't have to be a geek, but um, to me, that helps, like, get, you know, give parents a little bit more of a laser focus on what we're going for, because societal forces are so strong and we have these ideas of what our kid is going to turn out to be. Um, even me, like, you know, I'm always admitting my biases and I think there've been moments in time where I've thought about like, you know, my husband walking my daughter down the aisle someday. And there are like so many, you know, stereotypes involved with that scenario. Um, but it, it, it kind of, it forces you to remove your ego a little bit and think about, well, what if my child, you know, never got married? Or what if she has a disability? What if she is um, transgender? What if she doesn't go to college? What if she's fat? Like all these concepts are helpful to think about um, to kind of diminish those preconceived notions and let our kids just be who they are. Um, I think as parents, we need to be this constant reminder that children don't need to conform to the crowd. They don't have to be like everyone else and they don't have to look like everyone else, you know? And this is where body image really comes into play because we're dealing with this idealized body that culture has created for us that is, you know, white, thin, cisgender, heteronormative, right? Able-bodied, all that stuff um, as the ideal body, idealized body. And that's not something that is, you know, realistic or um, helpful for many children. 
So, um, you know, supporting their individuality is, you know, in my mind, always going to help them to feel like they can be themselves and not um, have to go toward the crowd. Mm. And so what advice do you have for parents? Because I think that when our, I'm making an assumption here, but I would assume that often when, when parents are wanting to have their child conform, whether they're conscious of like, that's what they're doing or not, but it's like having those assumptions about wanting them to fit the ideal or wanting them to be thin or to look a certain way or to go to college to get married, et cetera. It Mm -hmm. comes, I think a lot of it comes from this place of love of like wanting them to have Mm -hmm. a good life because parents realize that there is discrimination and stigma and all of these things. So like, what advice do you have for parents who are, who are listening, who are like, have those desires for their child Mm -hmm. or are starting to realize like, wow, I have been sort of like having this idea of what my child should be like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I see it most strongly when it comes to raising boys outside of gender stereotypes, because listen, we all want our children to have, I wouldn't say as easy as a life as possible, but like to not have too many barriers, right? And when boys um, are playing with toys or dressing in a way that's traditionally feminine, they are much more susceptible to bullying and teasing than a girl who wears, quote, boyish stuff. Um, And parents know this. And I think that's why sometimes they latch on to this my boy is such a boy type of attitude because it almost feels like I did a good job and it feels safer. It feels like my kid probably won't get teased for being, you know, girly and not macho enough. And that's not that great, but you know what? It's just going to be an easier life for him. So, you know, it's very common. And what we have to do is not just shore up our own child's um, being proud of their individuality, but also making sure that our children don't become the bully Mm. and accepting other boys. So like, even if you don't have a boy who loves to wear princess gowns, like you need to make sure that your, that your child, whoever it is, isn't teasing the ones who love princess gowns and that the adults in your life aren't teasing the ones in princess gowns because we know that's still happening too. Um, So it's like, yeah, it's it's not only boosting up their self-esteem, but kind of, you know, tempering the other, um, the public opinion and, and, you know, what other people are thinking. Yeah. The one thing I would sort of add to that, like to add more to the conversation is again, like uh, last week's podcast with Caroline Heldman, she was actually talking about how like toxic masculinity kills men, like men die at a higher rate at every single age because of toxic masculinity. And so even if you think that like you're doing something good for your child by forcing them to conform to the stereotypical boy behaviors, actually the research says you're not. So true. So true. (laughs) (laughs) That you're actually not helping your child by suppressing them or forcing them to conform or to engage in this like boys will be boys behavior that you're actually, you know, not. So beautiful. Because then we have these men who don't know how to identify their feelings, um, don't have close peer, you know, like close friends who they can talk to and um, are living up to this ideal of masculinity that they think they have to. 
So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not, it's not helping anyone, even if it seems easier when they're five or six. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 totally. It's so interesting. Like, um, I don't know why I'm adding this to the conversation if it'll even add value, but like my boyfriend has a best friend and they'll talk on the phone for like hours and they'll talk about like how they're feeling and who they're dating. And if they're like, if they're sad, like his boyfriend is a friend of people. So talking about like their dating and their breakups and they're sad. And I think it's like the cutest thing that they like literally talk on the phone for hours, like as if they were quote a girl. Yeah. I love (laughs) that. It's so healthy for them. Have you seen the man enough documentary that Justin Baldoni and a couple other celebs did? No, but I'm going to like, Google yeah. it after this. I've taken notes on some things. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, it was, uh, yeah, like this online series. He has Matt McGorry and um, a couple others in it. And there was one conversation where they talked about, like, what do you actually talk about with your friends? You know, is it just like sports and like, how's your job going? Or are you actually, as you said, talking about feelings and relationships and like what's going on in your life? And I feel bad for, for men when they lack that it's so important. Another, while we're talking about this, another great one is the Mask You Live In documentary. If you haven't seen that, um, I would recommend that anyone who, you know, loves a man or has a man in their life, like sit down and watch it with them. And it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. So Caroline Heldman, who was on the podcast, who studies gender, she was in that documentary talking about it. Oh, she was. So she oh. brought it up like last week oh, on the amazing. podcast, the, ma- the mask oh, awesome. in. So I'm excited. I need to like dive deeper into all of these because like, like I had mentioned earlier, like I will say things on my Instagram without even thinking about it. And then people who are more educated, who are more aware than me will DM me and be like, what, you know, exactly. So like, I I still have a lot to learn in this area. So I'm really happy that we're having, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's go to number five, which is be a role model. Yes. This may be one of the most important because everything we do as parents is role modeling. Um, And, you know, I see this in my house when it comes to, um, you know, everything from the division of household labor to the, you know, carrying the mental load to just the nurturing and compassion that children need. Um, You know, I strongly believe that children need to see men doing the, um, you know, giving that emotional connection to Um, And, you know, luckily as a society, I do think we're making a lot of progress in that area. Like all my friends who have kids, for the most part, have really just very involved dads who, um, you know, can talk to their kids about their feelings and are really present in their lives. So I think we're making a good shift. Um, But, you know, of course, when it comes to body image, you alluded to this earlier, there's a lot of work that we have to do on ourselves before we can you know, really serve as that positive body image role model. Um, But it's something that we're doing every day. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. So I feel like step one supports you with step five or like uh, pillar, pillar one supports you with pillar five, which is beautiful. So my, like, I want to chat with you about the advice that you have for parents, especially moms who have a difficult relationship with food in their bodies right now. And they feel that they're not ready to be a body image role model model for their kids. So like, what do you recommend? What's your advice? Yeah, well, it's, this is something I hear a lot. This is a, a frequent comment that I hear. And Kara, it kind of relates back to what you said um, about being a nanny. So first I would say like, you don't have to be perfect. Okay. So just forgive yourself and like, give yourself that grace that none of us are perfect. 
it's okay, right? Um, and the second is we don't always know the answer as parents. We kind of feel like we have to. Um, you know, my kid asked me questions about the planets and the galaxies, and like sometimes I sort of know the answer and sometimes I don't. So what do you do when you don't know the answer? You look it up together and you find the answer. So I think parents can look at this as a growing process for both of them. You know, positive body image, it's gonna be, it's gonna be growth for the parent and for the child. Um, and you can learn together. I also think that it's okay to admit some of your, you know, so-called mistakes or shortcomings in the past, like, because it makes you um, more real to them. It lets your children in on your imperfectness to say, you know, honey, to be honest with you, I struggled a little bit in high school with what I looked like too. You know, I didn't always feel super about my appearance. That goes a long way. You know, they need to know you're not perfect as a parent. Mm -hmm. And I'd say like the fact that people are even listening to this podcast right now shows that they care so much about raising children, you know, with positive body image, that that's a huge barrier right there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, now that I've given your listeners a little bit of grace saying it's okay, like, don't worry about it. You don't have to be perfect. Now I have to give a little bit of tough love because even if you feel you're not ready to be a role model, you already are, you know, your kids are already listening to you. Um, so if you feel like you're still in this really negative space and you don't know how you could ever possibly become, you know, body positive or like, I don't know if I could ever love, love, love my body. If that's your mind space, that's okay. Try to shift from being, from being negative to at least feeling kind of neutral. So if you can stop criticizing yourself um, out loud, especially in front of your children, um, if you can, you know, stop feeling like you need to repent for eating cake, you know, don't say in front of your children, oh, I really need to go to the gym next week and work this off, you know, or standing in front of your closet saying, I have nothing to wear. Nothing looks good on me anymore. I hate my clothes. You know, I hate my clothes. If you can move away from those to just be neutral at first, that is a huge success to just like, I have a body, right? I have clothes. I, I move my body sometimes, you know, and just use those neutral thoughts, then that's a good step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I would just like piggyback onto that and, and literally say like, if you're not in a good place with food in your body image to get help. Mm. So like actually seek out oh, yes. help yes. because, yes. you know, I think that it's, it's sometimes a tough pill for moms to swallow mm -hmm. that, um, their struggles with their relationship with food could contribute to their children. And yeah. I think sometimes it's easy to be in denial about it. And it's also, mm -hmm. sometimes we can say things that we don't think would impact their relationship with food and their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it actually does. And I, I have a client right now yeah. where I worked with her mom and now I'm working with her daughter. And so mm -hmm. I've really gotten to see, and I have a ton of clients where it's like the relationship with their mom, how their mom talked, it, even yeah. just personally, like the way yes. that my mom and my aunts talked was like the first place I ever heard that there was mm -hmm. ever anything wrong with bodies. And so if mm -hmm. you are a mom, and you're listening or you have a mom in your life, like you're, you're like, you know, your sister is a mom or whatever, like 
get help because Absolutely. truly, I think one of the best things you can do to protect your, and there's actually research from the, from the uh, beauty redefined world. The best mm-hmm. thing that you can do for your child is to heal your own relationship with food in your body so that you are Absolutely. a solid role model for them. So if you're listening, like if you're not willing to do this for yourself, do this for mm-hmm. your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. Get help. I'm so glad you said that. Um, and you know, and I'm, and I'm so lucky, you know, it's funny, like when I first started really diving into body image and children, um, I've almost been trying to reverse engineer my own life because I was really lucky to grow up in a household where like, it was the nineties, it was a low fat craze. And, um, I have a mother and an older sister who were not dieting. They were not using the thigh master. Like they, you know, it, they weren't into the low fat stuff. And I'm really, really lucky because of that. And I, I recognize today what a huge impact that had on my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing that you <laughs> grew up with two women who like were dieting <laughs> in the nineties. Yeah. That's, you know, that's awesome. Know. So what are some of the ways that you're helping your child have a positive relationship with food? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but, um, when it comes to food specifically, um, you know, when she was a baby, um, as my mom would say, like she was such a good eater, she would eat everything and, you know, no problems. And then as she entered this preschool stage, it's been a little bit, she's been much pickier. Um, so I'm trying not to freak out and let it be what it is. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest ways that we've tried to Um, encourage a positive relationship with food for her is removing the stigma. And I think, you know, most parents and family members, especially ones who are listening to your podcast, know that they're not really supposed to label stuff as good and bad, and there are no good foods and there are no bad foods. However, we're still, we're, we're still kind of using that language in different ways, because now it's what's healthy and what's a treat. So I really don't use those words in our household either because what is healthy? It's so subjective. And what's a treat? That's super subjective too. So um, like one, you know, one tip I give to parents that is a favorite of mine is um, removing dessert. And this doesn't sound like what it is, but um, so we, my child still has, you know, sweet things, but we don't have a separate course after dinner called dessert. So instead, we just, I give her like a cookie with her afternoon snack along with some fruit and vegetables and cheese or whatever. So it's, it it doesn't have to be on its own plane, you know, separate on its own pedestal. It can just be with all the other food. And that's one way that we're just trying to normalize food for her. I love that, by the way. (laughs) Like that sounds like a great tip, practical tip is like not making it separate, like putting it like all on the plate at the same time and like trusting your child to like make those choices. Mm -hmm. Okay. And (laughs) if you have an answer for this, so, so what do you have advice or tips or whatever for someone who is really, was actually really struggling with their child and that they are eating a ton of sugar and a ton of quote, like the junk foods and they're really Mm -hmm. like genuinely worried about their health or they are noticing Mm -hmm. that they are emotionally eating. So they are feeling bad about their bodies. And then that Mm -hmm. makes them want to eat. Like what advice or tip strategies do you actually have for those complicated situations? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, I think like when they're, when they're younger, it's easier because you're a little more in, in, when I say in control of food, I mean, you're in control of like what's served because you're doing the preparing. So for younger children, I would say just keep like putting out the food that you're eating for yourself, um, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks that is, um, that has lots of different options and they'll continue to pick, you know, and if they're picking like the so-called sweet stuff, like I truly think that um, with most children, they're going to kind of like self-regulate eventually to what their body is like telling them that they want and that they're going to actually crave more foods that have lots of water in them, you know, like a cucumber or an apple or something like that. I do think we worry a little bit too much, I have to say, as a society, like it's a very sort of privileged um, mentality a lot of times to be focused on like, is everything organic? Is my child getting all the right servings of all the right nutrients? And of course we all care about our children's health. Um, but I think I would just like step back first and ask if that's the problem, you know, like, is it societal pressure to kind of have that perfect dinner plate? Or is it really that your child is, you know, having a tough relationship with food? Um, so if it's, if they are still, as you said, like if they are an older child and they're having a lot of those issues, um, I still think that, you know, attempting to control either like make them eat less or make them eat more is usually going to backfire because if you're making a kid eat less when they next have the opportunity to be with food, right, they're going to binge or they're just going to eat as much as they can. You're going to hide it or sneak it. or yeah. yeah. And if you're trying to get them to eat more, they're going to feel really turned off by food and they might get kind of like an, an anxiety in their tummy and just like eat less because they feel like they're going to stuff their bellies. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't know if that's helpful, but like it's still relying on that child's intuition, which is something that we're just like constantly robbing ourselves as um, adults and children, like of our natural intuition to eat. Mm. So just having more faith and trust in their body's ability to self-regulate. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So what is the biggest myth about raising body confident children? Mm. Good question. Well, I hear a lot from parents, um, especially of daughters that they, um, tell their children, that they tell their daughters often that they are strong and beautiful and that they, you know, want to sort of remind them a lot that they're beautiful so that they can feel beautiful. And this, I would question the, the gender stereotypes that are inherent in that because I don't know any parents who are telling their boys that they're beautiful. So, you know, for me, this is why do we want our girls to feel beautiful? It's because we know beauty is still important in our culture. And we know that if they meet that standard of beauty that it, that's expected, um, that they will be complying with society's expectations of them. You know, and like, what really is feeling beautiful? How do you feel beautiful? Um, I personally don't want my daughter to need a third party to tell her she's beautiful. So if we feel that's necessary, it's like, it's reinforcing this external validation, right? Instead of having it come from the inside. 
Right. And this goes back to what you were saying about your daughter's teacher. Yeah. And then her being like, I wonder if my teacher's going to like my outfit. And then like your daughter getting a sense of gratification and validation from her teacher validating her outfit massively. And I'm, you know, I saw someone had sent me a video on Instagram where this young child was getting her hair done and was looking in the mirror and was like, I'm so ugly. Mm-hmm. And she must have been like, I don't know, three. And the hairdresser just immediately was like, you're not ugly. You're so beautiful. Like all of these things. And like the internet was like blowing up about it being right. so amazing. <laughs> and I was like, ah, like I get that she helped calm the child down, but all it did was reinforce the importance of being beautiful. So it actually wasn't really helpful in the long run. Absolutely. Like telling a child, like, yeah. just like when someone says, I'm so fat, you being like, you're not fat, you think that you're healthy, right. but actually you're just reinforcing fat phobia and that fat is being bad. So exactly. what if you have a child who comes to you and is like, I feel fat or I feel ugly. What do you recommend saying as a parent to like help make them feel better without reinforcing stigma and discrimination and the need to be beautiful? Particularly, mostly talking about girls here, but like just right, right, right. Yeah, great question. And as you said, right, I wouldn't rush to "you're so beautiful" or "no, you're not fat." Um, Just with an adult too, I would do that same thing. But um, I would come to a, I would um, come to them from a place of curiosity. So if if my kid said to me, "I feel ugly," I would ask her why. It's like, there's something else there that's not just the ugly, you know, like, did she have a bad day? Did someone tell her something that was hurtful? Did she not accomplish something that she was trying to, you know, like, what is it? Um, I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes um, when, when a kid says that they're ugly. So yeah, instead of rushing to say you're beautiful, um, I would say, why, you know, why do you say that, honey? Like, tell me more about that. Mm. Um, yeah. So to like to, instead of trying to like fix the situation, it's to hold space for someone and to get more, is. get more curious and see what else is going on. And again, that would be a really beautiful teaching moment. Yes. Yeah. Curiosity has helped me, um, so much in my relationship with my child. It's, um, if you can just like let, you know, give them a little bit of time and space and a little bit of silence too. So kids, so often kids don't get much silence from their parents to just like sit there and be able to talk about things um, without us like peppering them. What happened? Tell me more. Like, why are you saying that? You know, um, give them a little bit of, of silence and space. And, you know, same with, same with I, mommy, I'm fat, you know, like, you don't want to tell them that they're not because, right? Like maybe they are and you don't want them to think there's something wrong with that. Um, so again, it would be like, we all have different bodies, you know? Oh, isn't it interesting? Like how my, you know, thigh spreads out when I sit down. Like, that's so interesting. You know, um, I've actually like forced myself to kind of, you know, I've always had this thing about my belly and I've written about this on the blog, but like, I don't, I don't love, I've never had a six pack or anything like that. And my daughter loves to pull her shirt up and just, you know, she's four. So she just, you know, whatever, (laughs) has her whole body hanging out. And, um, at one point she's, this is like kind of a kind of a detour, but she's just like, mommy, like show me your belly. And the last thing I wanted to do was lift up my shirt, you know, post-pregnancy and like show her my belly and like have it out to the world. But you know what? I did it because I'm standing in my kitchen and it's just the two of us. And I was kind of forcing myself to like, not, I don't make peace with my belly, but just, we started like 
grabbing at our skin and like, you know, making jokes and having a little belly dance type of thing. So like, sometimes that's what we need to do for our kids. Mm. Yeah. And I could have seen how it would have been. It's so easy for you to want to hide that and feel ashamed. And then like, you're just teaching her that there's something wrong or something to hide. Exactly. You know, all of those things. So exactly. Mm. So fake it till you make it sometimes. <laughs> I mean, there's some neuroscience <laughs> to back that shit up. So, you know, sometimes right? it works, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So what's the number one easiest way to foster healthy body image in kids? Well, you know, interestingly, I think the easiest way to, to foster healthy body image in kids has nothing to do with your appearance or your body or how you look. It's all to do with your inner worth. So for me, the best way to raise, um, you know, a body confident child is to, you know, teach her to solve problems by herself, teach her, let her to be an independent thinker, um, you know, help her be motivated internally and not by external sources. Um, these are the ways, again, when I was trying to sort of reverse engineer um, how I grew up with positive body image, um, and how I was raised, you know, my, my mom especially really made us feel that we were, that we could handle problems, that we could tackle things, and that our value was inherent within us. And so that's really, I mean, and that's not easy, right? That's like an ongoing challenge that every parent is trying to do, but it has nothing to do with how we look. Um, but to me, that's the most important. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to continually reiterate that, you know, yeah. specifically with girls, obviously like with all kids, but obviously mm -hmm. there really needs to be that emphasis on supporting girls realize that there's so much more to them than what they look like. Absolutely. And that, yeah. and that we're always, and that we're always changing, you know, my, my number one favorite phrase is to tell her, did you know that I'll love you no matter what? Hmm. And she always says no, as if she's never heard it before, because I think she wants me to say it again. And then I say, well, I do. I'll love you no matter what. Oh, yeah, that's that's like sweet and simple. And, and I love it. So <laughs> yeah. Catherine, this has been awesome. I've loved this conversation. We're getting towards, I think we're past the hour mark here. So yeah. <laughs> let's, let's shift into some fun little rapid fire questions to wrap this up. And maybe they're not going to be okay. super cool. Yeah. What is one quick piece of advice for your younger self and you can pick any age? Mm. Yeah, I think I would say um, to, you know, when I was um, in high school and college, I was, I think it was very focused on um, achievements and timelines and thinking that adulthood, you know, that I had to, I was going to finish college and get into a good law school and finish law school and get a job and get married and have a baby and buy a house, you know, like mostly in that order. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, and then the most beautiful thing about life is realizing that you never have it quote all figured out. And I think especially like for young women in their early twenties, they often feel like they're behind on things. And so I would just love to like tell myself and all the young women listening that you're not behind. Like life is just this beautiful, messy thing. I could have never imagined when I was first working as a lawyer that I would like be running this, you know, online platform community to support feminist parenting. Like I never could have guessed that when I was 19 or 20. So yeah. Um, yeah. that's the great thing about life. 
Yeah. I love that you brought this up. I was like actually like writing a piece of content. I haven't posted it yet, but about exactly what you just said, how like we spend so much time doing what we think we're supposed to do. And I literally listed out, you know, get good grades, go to college, (laughs) get a great job, uh, find a, get married, have a baby, buy a house. And what's really interesting is like, I did the exact opposite. It was like, we were told that we were supposed to do all of these things. So I literally, like, I'm very rebellious. I was like, fuck all of that shit. (laughs) So it's like, I didn't graduate college. I dropped out my junior year, like still not married. Like, like all, like all of these things. It's like to some degree, like, I I think there's like nothing wrong with how I, my path has unfolded. Like I have no problem. It's really interesting. Like if it wasn't rebellious by nature, like, right. would I have wanted right. those things? And did I only not want them because mm-hmm. I was told I was supposed because to people want told them? You yeah, yeah. Like I need to re- like reverse psychology myself here and be like, is, is the joke on me? You know what I mean? Right. So, like, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that though. And yeah. you know, and the fact that you're like this young female entrepreneur and having your own business, it's awesome. And, and younger girls don't often think of that as a possibility. So yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's just showing like, there's no right way. Like I I firmly believe that like you could do whatever you want in life. Like there's no rules. There's no straight line. No, no, definitely not. So I love that advice. Um, and I love that you're here now doing this like amazing thing. Um, (laughs) okay. So you're on a deserted Island. You can bring one movie, one food. It could be like a meal. It could necessarily be like an avocado. It could be a meal. One TV show, one book, and one type of music. What would you bring? Wow. Okay. For each of those categories. Okay. You might have to remind me. All right. The first one was movie. Movie. I'm just going to go with like gut here. Almost famous. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Heath Ledger. Um, what's or the actress's some... name? Well, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> was it not Heath Ledger? What's the curly no, blonde girl's name? It was, wasn't Heath it Ledger? was Billy Crudup and, um, Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson. Yeah. That's it. I was yeah. so not accurate at all. I don't know where yeah, I got that I from. I love that movie because I, I kind of like see real, again, talking about like life not as a straight path. I think like if I hadn't been focused on achievements, I would have wanted to like follow a band around the country too. So. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe Just like um, the kid in that movie. Yeah. Maybe yeah. someday you will. <laughs> maybe someday you will. Oh my God. That's like so funny. It's never too late. Never too late. No. Okay. Food item. It could Food. be a dish. Yeah, I mean, it would probably just have to be dark chocolate. Okay, dark chocolate. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. TV show. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it simple. TV show Gilmore Girls. Mm. That didn't even require thinking. I'm I'm a Gilmore Girls expert. Okay, I've actually never seen Gilmore Girls. <gasps> oh, Kara, <laughs> check it out. It's on. It's on Netflix. Okay, okay. I've never. I don't watch The Bachelor I, either, and like I oh, feel I like no, I don't either. Oh, okay. Like everyone on Instagram seems to be watching The Bachelor, and I'm like, mm-hmm. am I the only person who gives zero shits about this show? Yeah, no, I'm. Yeah, I'm over that. I don't care. But Gilmore Girls is the best because I mean, it 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 um the setting was Connecticut, which is where I live. So. I went mm. to Gilmore Girls Fan Fest last year. Oh my I got God. to like meet some of the cast and the crew. Yeah, so fun. I mean, I can totally understand that. Like, I love all the movies that are based in California because I'm California obsessed. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> okay, book. <sighs> book. Um, probably anything by Jhumpa Lahiri. She's one of my favorite authors. She hasn't come out with anything lately, but she has um, a book of short stories that I love. Um, mm. Interpreter of Miladies. Mm, amazing I'm not familiar with her work I'll have to check it out yeah yeah and then music yeah that would have to be it would have to be Paramore 
Oh, I like her. Haley. Is her name Haley? The yeah. singer there? Yes. Yeah. Haley Williams. She just yeah. came out with some solo stuff, but um, I love the band. Got to meet them in person once. And um, yeah, I actually, I actually create, I think I mentioned this too. I actually created a cookbook for her totally randomly. I like made it on Shutterfly and had her sign a copy for me. And I named all the recipes after um, songs of theirs. Oh my God. So they have the song um, careful and it says you can't be too careful anymore and I called it you can't be too kaleful anymore it was a kale salad oh my god can we can I like have a copy of this can I make it a free download for people listening like hey you guys want this Param- paramore cookbook like, oh my god, that's yeah, so fun it's I the love best. It. yeah it's probably the weirdest thing I've ever done yeah it's awesome okay last question what's something inspiring or helpful you have learned in the last month or so like in the, re- in the recent past, and it could be words of wisdom, a perspective shift, an interesting fact, just like anything that was inspiring or helpful that you learned recently. Oh boy, that's a big question. I think I have to say, um, I've really been loving, just like one person I've really been loving lately is Naomi O'Brien. Um, she is a teacher and a parent, and she talks about um, teaching kids in an inclusive atmosphere and she talks about anti-racism and I've just been like I've just been learning a lot from her watching her videos following her on Instagram and I she's just helping me like to be you know a better parent Hmm, love that okay so Naomi O'Brien she's been teaching you a lot recently love that yes yay well Catherine this has been a pleasure. I am so excited about this episode. I want to thank you so much for being on and sharing your wisdom. Where can everybody find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, thanks, Carrie. This has been so much fun. I've, I've been loving talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Um, they we can probably find me- could. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, they can find me at fingerblue.com. Um, and if they want our, uh, our free body image guide to raising um, children with positive body image, they can go to thinkerblue.com slash body image. And are you on Instagram? Yes. They can find me at thinkerblue. Thinkerblue. I mean, I know you're on Instagram, but I mean, okay. So one quick wrap, like quick question. Why do we name it thinkerblue? Oh yeah. We didn't even get to that. Um, It's a play on pink or blue. So it was, you know, my frustration when we didn't find out the sex of my unborn baby and everyone was like, why not? Um, my thought was, yeah, why does it have to, why, why does it have to be pink or blue? We really need to think or blue. <laughs> <Put> <laughs> yeah, a little I love more it. Thought into these uh, gender expectations. Yes. I love that. I love that. Um, such a thank great you. way to wrap this up. So Catherine, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Kara. And that's our show. If you loved it, would you pretty, pretty please go leave a ratings and review on iTunes or share it in your Instagram stories. You can tag myself. You can tag Catherine. I know we both would love to see that you were listening and that you enjoyed it. That always puts such a big smile on my face. And it helps the podcast reach more people. It really, truly helps keep the podcast going. It helps iTunes know that this is valuable and it's helping people. So if you do have iTunes, would you please leave a ratings and review if you are loving the pod and 
And again, if you are struggling with your relationship with food and you want support during this time, please join Tristan and I Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our workshop. It's called Calming the Chaos. It's totally free. Come hang out with us. And then on Friday, the 27th, if you want to learn how to stand out online as a new health coach, join Brandilyn and I at 12 or 12.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you need either of those registration links and you can't find them in the show notes here or on Instagram, just shoot me a DM at Kara's Kitchen and I'll get them over to you. Okay, sending you love. I hope you're well. And again, thank you for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. <laughs>